0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. I hope you're all having a nice Christmas and on today's podcast we've got something to mark the festive season, a conversation about some of the most surprising incidents in the history of Christmas from disturbing greeting cards to obscene snowmen. To find out more about the stranger side of our festive traditions, I spoke to the historians Sam Willis and James Daybell, who are the creators of the Histories of the Unexpected book and podcast series, which takes a sideways look at some of history's most popular topics. I started by asking Sam and James how they went about uncovering the unexpected history of our Yuletide traditions. It's James's voice that you'll hear first.
1: Well, we're very subversive at Histories of the Unexpected. I think that's it. I think subversion is what we do. So if you think about a standard history of Christmas, it's the nativity, it's the birth of Christ, the Christmas story, uh, it's celebrations, feasting customs, it's the Victorian uh, invention of Christmas, all those sort of other things that we <laughs> associate with it. Christmas trees, crackers, cards, presents, presents father christmas even um but what we wanted to do was to sort of flip it on its head and go actually it's not about all of those things there are different ways of getting into it
2: i remember the car journey where we actually brainstormed this yes and um and you went well you didn't even think about it you said well christmas is actually all about animal cruelty (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) animal cruelty carrots migration shoes electrification mindfulness empire bad luck
0: some pretty dark and sinister topics there. That you well, so
1: bad. Should we start with bad luck? Yes. So bad luck for us. Yeah, we often think of Christmas as a very sort of joyous, sort of celebratory time, but oftentimes people have seen it as a time uh, full of superstition, uh, fraught with bad luck. Robins, for example. You know, you you look at the the robin uh, outside and you think of robin as a real sort of symbol of Christmas and you see it on Christmas cards all the time. But there are certain parts of the country where receiving a Christmas card like that with a robin on it would be seen as bad luck. So, for example, in Gloucester in the 1950s, um, receiving a Christmas card with um, a robin on would be seen as greeted with absolute horror. Because the idea is that these kind of birds entering the house were a portent of of, um, impending death within the family. Likewise with holly, we're all used to having holly uh, inside, but holly is seen as something that is, you know, a harbinger of of death. Um, And even in certain parts of the world, you know, once you've had holly in the house, there are certain ways of getting rid of it you know, so that you burn, you have to burn it afterwards to get rid of all those evil spirits. Or even um, letting fire leave the house on Christmas Day is, a, is something else that people aren't allowed to do. Uh, this is a 19th century sort of belief. Um, this is way before um, those sort of Lucifer matches uh, that people would have. And so if, for example, uh, somebody um, came to your house on Christmas Day, they had no fire... They couldn't cook their turkey. They asked you for a light. You wouldn't be allowed to give them a light from your fire uh, because it would be better. Ba- See, it's it's all about, it's not only about bad luck, it's also about being rude to neighbours. Being rude to neighbours, yes. being justified.
2: Well, one of the things about it is once you you look into, just to say, this little aspect of it where you've got these kind of strange traditions. As far as I'm concerned, it then because some of them are so weird or they're so as we see them as weird, because we we don't necessarily know them, we don't understand the context of what's going on, I think it gives us license to basically invent any old nonsense and have it as a, as a tradition. I don't agree with you. I know you don't agree, <laughs> but I think you know, that's weird. Who suddenly decided that, that taking someone, right, someone somewhere was sitting in his house, minding his own business, and decided that it was bad luck to take... Light outside, take a fire outside. That wasn't there wasn't a kind of a meeting when everyone sat around and said, Look, should we decide that it's good luck or bad luck to take fire outside? Some some person has had this idea and it's weirdly caught on. So how's that happens? And why why are we not allowed to make the I might just say, well, actually taking light outside, red light on Christmas at ten minutes to midnight. Very lucky.
1: It would have to catch on though. So we're talking about know, super, so we're talking that's about a really weird thing to superstitious catch on. That beliefs happen? that are <laughs> you know, that are widespread. It's a very interesting question. Yeah. For which I do not have the answer.
2: I reckon there was a, no, no, I mean, who does? But I reckon it's really interesting if you stop and think about where traditions, particularly weird ones, came from. And it came from one, I suspect, really creative person having a bit of a laugh.
0: Earlier on, James, you said that you like to subvert things. And I think a lot of christmas traditions in the past have been a time for subverting the norm and um societal subversion
1: yeah absolutely i mean there are all sorts of traditions of that um i think certainly i mean certainly we're quite blessed living down in the west country that sort of thing still goes on you know as part of as part of as part of folk traditions in various um various towns and villages around the Southwest. So this idea of the Lord of Misrule, where you, know, you have the custom that people who, um, who basically were a sort of lower down in society and would constantly be subordinate to others and taking orders, uh, suddenly on one day a year, were allowed to sort of ape that tradition. It was the world turned upside down. They would dress up and go around the town causing havoc. Um, and so that I mean, j- traditionally, those kinds of Sharivari or those those sort of tra- sort of popular folk traditions were a way of letting out the sort of pent up social pressures within society in a, in what is a a sort of you know humorous jocular kind of. You know, fun sort of way.
2: But it's interesting; it came out at Christmas because the whole the world turned upside down. This, this yep. uh, example, it didn't just happen at Christmas. It happened all over Europe. There are examples of it actually, you know, all over the world where yep. people choose to do this and they 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 mess around with authority, they play with social structure, and um, that's very very popular because it gives people who who don't necessarily have a voice in life a bit of a, you know a moment to actually sing and chat. One of the one of the um, ones I know most about is that they did it crossing the equator on, on ships. And it's still yeah. something that happens now. And and the whole rigid organized structure of a ship gets turned here when they cross the equator. So it, the point is is that that is an established tradition. And I think they use Christmas as an excuse to do the the, the tradition that they really, really like.
1: That one of the examples that we came across was in Renaissance Europe in Brussels uh, 1510 to 1511, and it was the Winter Fair. During the cold winter of 1510 to 1511, the citizens of Brussels built around 110 snowmen. And so there was a whole sort of festival of snowmen. The town was just full of these. And what was interesting about these is if you look at, if you look in detail about what they were, they were so subversive and often very obscene. Um, So there were all sorts of things depicting folklore figures such as unicorns and mermaids, religious and political themes, but also the extremely sexual and even scatological. One of the more sexualized sculptures uh, could be found in the red light district of the city, which depicted a prostitute completely naked with breasts and genitalia sculpted to attract attention and a dog ensconced between her legs. There was also a snow cow that delivered turds, farts, and stinking, a defecating senator, um, a mannequin pea fountain depicting a small boy urinating into the mouth of a drinker, and finally a drunk drowning in his own excrement. So these these are quite subversive, far far from the jolly happy soul that we know as Frosty the Snowman uh, from the 1950s song. So really sort of really subversive.
2: I think it's interesting as well. I mean, I... Recently, went to Harbin in China, from the far, far north of China, where they have the Harbin Ice Sculpture. Um, Ooh. If anyone's near a computer, just Google the Harbin Ice Sculpture. It's absolutely amazing, uh, and it's all quite structured there, and um, and it's all controlled. And I love the idea of these guys in Brussels saying it makes me think that someone suggested. Well, I tell you what, everyone, why don't we all get together and we'll have a really nice snow sculpture party, a snow sculpture event, and then someone just sat there and went, I'll tell you what, mate, I've got a really good idea. We are going to do the rudest ones we possibly can, and we're going to get everyone in the entire city to do it. So yet again, I'd love to know who came up with I- that idea, um, but it's you know part of the subversion.
1: But this idea of, this idea of subversion, uh, I think we can also read that into Christmas cards. Um, and we looked at this when we found a sort of collection of Victorian Christmas cards... Uh, that were actually really spiteful. Uh, The Victorian Christmas card was was commercially first produced in 1843 by Sir Henry Cole. And once you get the sort of halfpenny stamp from about the 1870s onwards, you find that this kind of um, democratised post becomes much more commonplace. And there are some scrapbooks that survive uh, in a museum in the Midlands, Um, that have a collection of the most weird, sinister-looking Christmas cards you've ever come across, including, uh, here's our friend the robin, including an image of a dead robin, a child boiled in a teapot, a clown sneaking up on a policeman in order to assault him. It's kind of like a sort of Banksy um, Victorian Christmas card, a very is
2: that the one with the red-hot poker? He's just jabbing him in the bum with a poker. Lo-
1: he looks like he's going to attack yeah. him. Yeah, uh, A grizzly looking snowman um, and a, a frog walking away with a dagger in his hand, having stabbed another frog in the heart.
2: And and stolen his wallet. The I mean, the dead robin one's fascinating. It's a, it is a dead robin and there's nothing else. Right in the middle of a cream-coloured card, the robin is flat on its back, wings out slightly, little robiny feet, you know, raised up and it's motionless and it is an ex robin. And at the bottom of the card it just says may yours be a joyful christmas. <laughs> Unlike this poor robin, I'm assuming, is what it's, you know, is what it's like. So I mean the reasoning be- behind it so we need to talk to someone who is an expert on Victorian the Victorian sense of humor.
0: Dead robins are quite a good point for me to pick up something you mentioned earlier which I think a lot of people at home will be saying what? Christmas is about animal cruelty. Mm. Explain.
1: One of my favourite traditions... Uh, this is another sort of thing about me, Chris, you know, Christmas. I love, I have my Christmas traditions, one of which is that I need to read certain books each year. So I read I read the Pickwick Papers, the Christmas scenes from that. I read uh, Christmas Carol. I read uh, Wind in the Willows, the sort of Christmas scene there.
2: Christmas, Christmas family having a lovely time, James Silent to the corner reading no, no, no,
1: Dickens. No, 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 <laughs> no. I'm not there on Christmas Day, like just sort of reading for eight hours. But, before, but in that kind of run up to Christmas. But one of my favorites is uh, is Dylan Thomas's uh, Child's Christmas in Wales, which describes a a sort of semi-autobiographical account of Dylan Thomas growing up and these various sort of Christmases that he would have spent. And he describes being outside, before he's called in for Christmas lunch, being outside with his friends and basically stalking, like hunters, these cats. And then cruelly waiting till he sees the whites of the eyes of the cats and then just hurling snowballs at them.
2: Here we are. Um, This is part of the, the poem. So A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas in the early 1950s. It was always snowing at Christmas. December, in my memory, is white as Lapland, though there were no reindeers, but there were cats. Sleek and long as jaguars and horrible whiskers spitting and snarling, they would slink and slide over the white back garden walls and the lynx-eyed hunters. Jim and I, fur-capped and moccasined trappers from Hudson's Bay off Mumbles Road, would hurl our deadly snowballs at the green of their eyes. Um, And it's just actually one aspect, A, A, of the... the, There's a whole history of people being cruel to cats and being... Crawl to cats at Christmas is a perfect opportunity because snow provides you with weapons. But also there's... um, um, It, it comes up right to the present day and uh, uh, there's been a lot of noise in the press as well about how miserable it can be if you're a pet, particularly a new pet, particularly a present at mm-hmm. Christmas and how pets are often ignored, pets not bought. So there's actually a much broader, like real contemporary issues to do with what happens to the pets in our lives... At Christmas Day, and it's not necessarily a very nice one.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
1: This is a letter to Santa penned by two young Dubliners in dated 1911, and it survived inside a fireplace for 81 years. And it's written, "Good luck, Father Christmas. Um, I want a baby doll and a waterproof with a hood and a pair of gloves and an apple." and a gold penny, and a silver sixpence, and a long toffee. Isn't that sweet? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: On a somewhat jollier note, we can't talk about Christmas without talking about food and drink You must have some historical oddities to share with us on that. Carrots.
1: Carrots. Yes, definitely. I have carrots. During the Second World War, while rationing was imposed and supply lines were cut across the British Empire, um, the sort of luxurious treats that you'd expect on your table uh, were greatly (laughs) diminished. (laughs) Uh, And one of the things that we came across when writing our book on World War Two was a recipe for a carrot Christmas pudding called a War and Peace Christmas pudding, which was an alternative to uh, sort of traditional Christmas pudding using carrots instead of mincemeat. And it was first made in Canada during the Great War and then sort of continued. Um, And it consisted of flour, breadcrumbs, suet, grated raw potato, carrot to bulk out the mixed dried fruit and spice. Um, And there was a lack of fortified spirit. So you wouldn't feed this um, You'd feed it with cold, cold misery.
0: I was on board until the suet and the potatoes.
1: Well, that would be to sort of stodge it out and give it weight. Sort of, but there are, there, are early, there are early recipes for Tudor mince pies uh, as well, which was basically meat, uh, heavily sort of meat-based. Uh, the National Archives uh, used to have a Christmas card uh, that was based on, they had a sort of picture of this 16th century recipe, mince pie recipe. It's also all about empire because when um, when rationing was not on, um, if you think about the ingredients that go into a traditional Christmas pudding, they basically come from across the British Empire. Um, so if you think about it, um, you've got currants from Australia, raisins from South Africa, minced apple from Canada, demerara sugar from the West Indies, ground cloves from Zanzibar, brandy from Cyprus. And during the um, early 20th century, George V and his family at Sandringham, uh, Christmas 1927, enjoyed an extra special festive pudding produced by their royal chef, who used all of the ingredients from the empire. And this was sponsored by the Colonial Institute, who described it as a symbol of unity of empire. And they desired that every household in the country should eat such a pudding And part of this was about supporting the trade of empire.
2: I was thinking about that the other day, actually, because I thought I'd cook something quite Christmassy. And my go-to choice of cooking something Christmassy was to put cloves in it. Which obviously came from British-controlled areas of Africa. Yes. Uh, And I'd never really thought about it before. But the way you can read Empire and Changing Empire and Changing Tastes into the history and into the smell of Christmas, Mm. there's a very distinctive smellscape Yes. Isn't there? That it only really works if you've got certain sort of really, really key things. And um, yeah, it's fascinating to see how that was was influenced and affected by trade routes.
0: Yes. Um, in the feature you wrote for our Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, you talk about some of the figures, other than Father Christmas, of course, that other cultures have um, imagined up around Christmas. This is all connected to the chimney, isn't it?
2: It absolutely is. Um, so rather than thinking about who specifically has been invented, you just need, need to know that there are there are. It's not all happy Father Christmasy stuff. There are other ghouls and goblins, and that's all linked to to chimneys, particularly because chimneys are um, an unprotected way into the house. Chimneys are dangerous.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there are all if you look at throughout sort of European folklore. They're all Chimneys have always been associated with the supernatural as an entry point into the household, You know whether this be evil or whether it be good. So if we have a look in Greece and Serbia, the calacanceroi are Christmas goblins who are believed to live underground for most of the year, and they surface during the 12 days of Christmas to come down your chimney into the house and basically to wreak havoc. Um, and one of the ways of preventing them... Um, these evil beings descending down your chimney is to light is to light a Yule log in it uh, during the twelve days of Christmas, or to throw a pair of foul-smelling shoes onto the flames, which would ward off these evil spirits. And what we see is that is that these kind of traditions um, basically get they migrate across the Atlantic uh, to North America. So there are early depictions of St. Nicholas, and they associate him with dropping gold coins down chimneys. Uh, So, for example, in 16th century Holland, uh, which led to the tradition of children placing shoes on the hearth on the feast of St. Nicholas. Um, And they'd awaken in the morning to see their shoes full of rather than stockings, full of sweets and and coins and Italian folklore. An old woman named Bufana, uh, sometimes known as the Christmas witch, delivered gifts to children on the eve of Epiphany, the 6th of January, slipping them into shoes by the fireplace. And then these traditions go across to America and spread and are connected to um, St. Nicholas coming down the chimney. And we've written a chapter on chimneys in our first book, Uh, Histories of the Unexpected, how everything has a history that describes how this is connected to certain key publications. Uh, Nickerbocker's History of Christmas and I think um, Clement C. Moore's um, Twist the Night Before Christmas, which are some of the first depictions of Father Christmas.
0: If you could offer an unexpected historical fact for people to share over their turkey dinners with their families, what would it be?
2: Um, one of the most interesting archives of historical things we've come across are children's letters to Father Christmas, which have been found up chimneys. So um, go Indeed check what's inside your chimneys. Chimneys are actually archives full of all sorts of the most amazing historical material. So you might think that a child writes down their, their, their wish list, sets fire to it, and it disappears up the chimney, where actually what happens more often than not is that it half burns and gets stuck there, uh, where it stays for sometimes decades until some builders come along, renovate the house, and they find kids' letters to Father Christmas up the chimney. Brilliant.
1: This is a letter to Santa penned by two young Dubliners in, dated 1911, and it survived inside a fireplace for 81 years. And it's written, Good luck, Father Christmas. Um, I want a baby doll and a waterproof with a hood and a pair of gloves and an apple, and a gold penny, and a silver sixpence, and a long toffee. Isn't that sweet? And there are dozens of these that we've come across in various archives. But a fact that I would share with you is that Christmas is as much about violence and rioting, back to our subversion, as much about violence and rioting as it is with sharing and caring. And it's well known Oliver Cromwell and his Puritans sought to abolish Christmas, which they saw as a popish superstition. They passed an ordinance by Parliament in June 1647, which threatened punishment to anyone who celebrated this festival. Now, as you can imagine, the ban didn't go down very well in all quarters. And in December 1647, many of the citizens of Canterbury defied it, taking to the streets to riot. And this is described in a pamphlet called Canterbury's Christmas, or a true relation of the insurrection in Canterbury on Christmas last. And it describes how shops that stayed open on this holy day were ransacked, the mayor, aldermen and constables attacked, and the sheriff knocked down his head fearfully broke, it was God's mercies his brains were not beat out. So there we are.
2: And there are other examples of that as well. People getting stressed, people getting drunk. That happens quite a lot on Christmas Day. And um, if your family ends up having a bit of a row by the end of the day, um, just have have the reassurance that you're not alone. And it's been happening for years and years and years.
1: Happy Christmas, (laughs) everyone.
0: That was Sam Willis and James Daybell. Sam and James wrote a feature about unexpected festive history for the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, On Sale Now. They've also recently released four new books in the Histories of the Unexpected series on some of the blockbuster topics of history, the Tudors, Vikings, Romans and the Second World War. All four of those books are on sale now, published by Atlantic. Sam and James are also about to head out on tour. You can catch their Histories of the Unexpected live shows at various locations across the UK throughout 2020. Head to historiesoftheunexpected.com to find out more. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again on the 30th of December when Catherine Harvey will be telling me why medieval people were not as filthy as you might think.